Our Father, as we acknowledge our access to the throne of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, we're reminded of the work that you have done for us, the commitments that you have made to us in your covenants, and the indwelling Holy Spirit that you've given to us as our teacher. We pray that our hearts would be illuminated through his ministry tonight to the word that he spoke once in history and is preserved from generation to generation. We ask that through Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to try to develop the basis for the prophetic section of the Bible. So, if we can start by turning to that chart on page 36, um, I want to begin by reviewing what the prophets are about. Many different prophets in the scripture, many different books in the scripture written by prophets, including the historical books that were also written by the prophets. Um, these guys had an agenda, and we want to really think about why the Holy Spirit uh, set up prophets to start with. I mean, why are these guys here? We know from the Mosaic Law Code there were priests, and we know the priests dealt with sacrifices, and they promoted worship, they taught the Torah to the people, they were teachers, they were doctors, uh, the medical work that was done under the Sinaitic Covenant was largely administered through Levites, which shows, by the way, historically medicine was not a business, it was a ministry. Um, and so we have that, that function. But the problem is, long come the prophets. What, what are the prophets about? Well, we want to look at this chart again um, just to firmly fix in our minds so that as we get into details tonight, we won't lose the big picture, okay? Because we're getting into a little bit of law formats and this sort of stuff, covenant. We're going to review some of the covenants um, as the basis for how the prophets are working. So, before we do any of that, before we get into any of those details, um, I want to review with you this process of restoration. Uh, this is a chart that we remember developed after the David chart. The David chart didn't have this top row on it. That was missing in David because in David's situation, he uh, had no prolonged period in which he was out of fellowship to build up carnality in his soul, to build up strongholds that had to be torn down. David was very uh, quick to respond. Even after he sinned, he was quick to respond to the prophetic words spoken to him by Nathaniel. So for that reason, it's not very visible when you look at the David narrative, what's going on. Nathan's role probably lasted not more than 15 minutes there. So it, it isn't quite as visible as later. So this chart we developed uh, showing not the David series, not that section of stories, but the Elisha stories. Because Elisha is a very fiery figure, he's easy to remember, and your mind sort of puts it together better. So let's review these four steps. The first thing that happens when there's been a, a prolonged period of disobedience by the people, by a, a people locked into a covenant agreement with God, and that's the whole thing in this, God does not abandon covenants. So 
if we're in covenant with him, even though we turn against the covenant, he is going to pursue because the covenant has got to come to pass. So it's as though we're locked into these things. And it makes for a very rough ride when we're disobedient. So, divine chastening occurred, and the illustration we had from history, so we can see what that divine chastening looks like. This is not just religious hokey words here. This is an actual historical thing. So I put the illustration of Elijah's ministry to Israel, a total failure of economic security and religious promises of the Baalist agenda. You remember how those stories all conspired to show that? The, the god Baal was supposed to provide grain, undergird his economy. Baal was supposed to protect them, military security. Baal was supposed to be the one to have fellowship with them and so on. Well, all those promises of the Baal cult failed. And in Elisha's way, they were dramatically disproven by circumstances in history. And that was part of God's working. There was a direct contrast with the Word of God. So remember that conviction on the right side of this column here, this divine chastening. Two things are going on on the right side in this box. The first thing that's going on is that we have up to the semicolon in that box, that is Deuteronomy 18 at work. Remember, we gave you the two tests out of the Mosaic Law. How does God disprove and authenticate himself and disprove the false prophets? It's always what they promise does not come to pass. So the first part of that box is, and we can generalize that to our lives, is that false religion never finally delivers on its promises. Deuteronomy 18. The other test is as a direct contrast with the word of Jehovah, or word of Yahweh, and that's Deuteronomy 13. Even if miracles happen, that is not proof of a false religion. Because for a false religion, it has to pass the test, is it fitting with the word of God? Regardless of the miracles, all the hoopla, forget the hoopla, does the teaching of the false religion match the canonical scriptures? That's why the Bible is so important. It's the only tool we've got to actually measure truth from falsehood. It's the ultimate criterion. And what is going on with all this? On the left side, on the first row, divine chastening, a destruction of mental strongholds of demonic idolatries to clear the vision of who God really is. What happens is that sin fogs our vision. It lowers the visibility. And we no longer perceive who God is. When we, there's always a demonic element. Uh, the principalities and powers operating to project these, these visions, these falsehoods, into our heads. And the church fathers clearly believed that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8... Um, that the things which are sacrificed in false religions are sacrificed to demons. It's quite clear. That's a statement, 1 Corinthians 8. So, the mental strongholds are there, and their insidious function is to destroy a vision of who God is. Because everything else falls to the ground if we're not clear on the nature of God himself. That's why... We have to be so theocentric. We have to keep going back to God, back to God, back to God. Not how we feel today. Not how we felt last week. Back to God. 
He's the constant. He's immutable. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's the one who's loves. Human love can't even compare with God's love because God has perfectly secure. We can never show that kind of love because we're not 100% secure, we don't think. But God is 100% secure, so he's never threatened. Doesn't bother him in the least, anything like this that infringes, appears to infringe upon his domain. So, the strongholds have to be cleared out. Why do these have to be cleared out? Let's go down the logic on the left side of this chart. You've got to clear the vision of who God really is. Why do you have to do that? Because what's the next step? Conviction of sin. How do you get here if this is messed up? You cannot go to conviction of sin unless you have clear who God really is. Because what, what happens if you go too fast from this box to this box is that what you pick up here is not conviction of sin. What it looks like, conviction of sin, but what it really is, it's social embarrassment or personal embarrassment. Well, personal embarrassment and social embarrassment is not conviction of sin. That's why Psalm 51 keeps pointing out, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Yes, I did wrong to Bathsheba. Yes, I, killed, I murdered her husband. Yes, I screwed up as the king of Israel. All those are very true. We're not denying those. Those are consequences. But they are not the core of the sin. The core of the sin is not between man and man, or woman and man, or man, woman and man, child, child and parent, parent and child. The center of sin is against God. So unless we freely acknowledge who he is and are relaxed and comfortable there, we can't move down here to conviction of sin. Now, the role of all the prophets that we're into at this point in Israel's history, their role spiritually is to hit this box. That's what these guys are trying to do. All the books that are written, there's 16 of them. I'll show you in about five minutes how to remember most of them. But their job is to get down into conviction of sin. Why conviction of sin? To mope around forever and, you know... That's not the point. The point is to move down to the next thing. Confession of sin. Why is that? So we can be restored. In other words, the idea is to keep moving down to here. This is where we want to be. But we can't get down here until you get here. Can't get here until you get here. Can't get here until you get here. There's a progress. And it can't be short-circuited. And so the prophets spent an enormous amount of time and energy trying to clarify who God was to the people. And they had some very ingenious ways of doing this, well, it's because God was the one that was doing it. Um, so I would like you to take your Old Testament out, and we want to look at it just a minute for this prophetic section. Get acquainted with this part of the Bible. It's the part that isn't worn. Um, first five books we know, that's the Torah. Then we go through, and you picked up Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles in the, at least in the way the English Bible is written so you can think of those as all history books now if you look at your Bible you'll see you pass through Ezra and Nehemiah which are also history books the English canon was put together in a different order than the Jewish canon it doesn't make any difference I mean the same set of books but they're in a different order probably just appealed better to the people that made up the the uh, canon. The actually, this is the Greek Septuagint uh, version. So this was done 
two or three hundred BC. All right, so you have Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And you have a little book like Ruth sticking there as a bridge between Judges and the Kings. Now you come to Chronicles, you come to Ezra and Nehemiah, also history books, but they're written after the Restoration period. Now what, and we skip over Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Those are all wisdom books. Now, if you'll come to the section of the Bible where you have the three major prophets. And we want to, tonight, just to get familiar with the terrain, this section of the Bible. Let's remember there are three major prophets. Sixteen books here. And there's three major prophets. Those guys are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Look how long they are. Just skim through their length of the book and you'll see why they're called major prophets. These are the center and you can get an idea. Just start with chapter 1 and run to the next chapter. Uh, run to the next book. So you go through Isaiah and you keep going through Isaiah and going through Isaiah and you find he has 66 chapters. A lot of stuff there. That's all Isaiah. And he was one of the major prophets. Then you come to the next guy, Jeremiah. And you keep going through him, chapter after chapter after chapter. And he has 52 chapters. Then there's a little book called Lamentations, which is also written by Jeremiah after that. Then you come to Ezekiel, and you keep going through Ezekiel, and going through Ezekiel, and going through Ezekiel. And then you cut all the way down to the, to the end of Ezekiel, and you'll see he has 48 chapters. So those are the big three. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And, not without surprise, they are known as the major prophets. Now, there are 13 minor prophets. Major and minor do not refer to their importance. Most churches, all of them are considered minor. We're using the distinguishment major and minor simply to refer to the quantity. Major means they, they wrote a lot, big books, and the minors are small. Now, the minor books, if you, again, keep going through your text, you'll see there's Daniel. And they, by the way, these are not ordered chronologically. I really don't know why they're, they're in this sequence, but this is, not, this is not the order in which they wrote. This is not the order in which they ministered. This is not the order in which they even lived. Daniel, Hosea, you know, just kind of thumb through and see how size-wise. See, these guys are smaller. There's Daniel, there's Hosea, there's Joel, there's Amos. And if your memory doesn't work well and you need a silly little thing to remember these guys you can think of Daniel some, some boy get some crazy little boy in your mind who takes a hose for Hosea and he sprays jelly all over the place making a mess and so you have Joel and Amos and that kind of gives you a gets those under under control as far as the, the order and sequence. Okay, those four men, minor prophets, they ministered in various ages 
And I'm sorry to say, as I said, they, we don't know really why they're sequenced the way they are. Then you come to Obadiah, and you can see by Obadiah, I mean, it's like the book of Jude. Um, you don't have to worry about um, going to sleep before you reach the end. Obadiah, Jonah, we all know Jonah and the whale, uh, Micah, and Nahum. And you want some stupid little thing to remember them, you can think of some Jonah saying, oh, when he fell in the water and he got in the whale and the whale was taking him toward Israel and he thought that was his car, my car. And then when he finally went to Nineveh, he created Nahum with his gospel, which reminds you of Nahum or something. So, you can remember that these guys, another sequence, Obadiah, and you can have Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. Again, out of sequence historically, out of sequence thematically. Then you continue through and you'll see that the next four books are HZHZ. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. So there's two pairs of H's and Z's there. Then you come to the last guy uh, before Matthew. He's Malachi. He's M. So you can think of him just before Malachi. Now, those are the 16 books. And you can tell that 16 books are a lot of books. And it sort of suggests that since the Holy Spirit is the author of all of these books, that he must have had a pretty important program on his mind to put all these in the canon, even though we don't bother and read them anymore. Um, what are these guys doing? What is their central role as far as producing that awareness of God? Here's how all 16 guys went about producing an awareness of God. They did so by explaining how and why God worked in history. All these guys are centered on history. They are actually historians in the finest sense of the term. If you turn to page 38 in the notes, I have a sentence there I want to draw your attention to. Page 38. Keep in mind that some of these guys worked in the northern kingdom, some of them worked in the southern kingdom. But whether they were in the north or whether they were in the south, their ministry was always focused on the same thing, clarifying who and what Jehovah God really looks like. Who is this God with whom we have to do? The southern kingdom, again, statistic. The southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom's name, Judah. Northern kingdom's name, Israel. How many dynasties existed in the south? How many dynasties existed in the south? The answer is one. Why is that? Davidic covenant. After Saul, finally, I'm talking about. Have Saul, the first dynasty, and then you, the, the, the Saulite dynasty really doesn't a dynasty, it's just one guy. And then you have David and all of David's son and lineage. And that dynasty survives from the time of David, which is 1000 B.C. approximately, down to the destruction of the southern kingdom, the magic date, 586. So there you have 
400 years of one dynasty ruling. Now, in the light of world history, you can say, well, 400 years isn't that long. Yeah, well, you subtract 400 from the year 2000, what does it take you? It takes you back to 1600. How many of us and our ancestors were running around here in 1600? So this would be like we had a continuous family leading this country since the time of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and Jamestown. So that gives you an idea of feel for how long the Davidic line lasted. The average length in the Davidic line, the average reign length of each king was 17.7 years. Okay. In the north and kingdom, there were nine different dynasties. And they only lasted, the total length of time for the north, uh, the north was from 930, the date of the Civil War, and the splitting of the kingdom, about 930 B.C., down to 721, 200 years. So here you have a kingdom, one half the duration of the southern kingdom, uh, as far as the length of the active monarchies go, had nine different dynasties in, the, in those 200 years. So see the instability in the north compared to the south. That's the, that the prophets are concerned with that. Prophets deal with that. Why is the North so flabby? What is going on with all the turmoil and the assassinations and the political upset and all the rest of it is going on in the North? But we don't have that in the South. Almost had it several times, but always the dynasty survived. All right, page 38. On the first paragraph, there's a famous incident that I want to show you how fragile history is and how often it's only one person that makes the difference in strange ways at strange moments in strange circumstances I quote a passage 2nd Kings chapter 11 and if you'll turn to 2nd Kings chapter 11 for a moment this is just a quick snapshot of the low point in the southern kingdom for the Davidic dynasty this is when had it not been obviously for God's promises the whole dynasty in the, in the south would have gone down the drain. So, in 2 Kings 11, verses 1 to 3. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal offspring. Now, this cute lady is related to guess who in the north? Who was the other cute female that we had going there. Jezebel. So here's Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah. She saw her son was dead, so she killed off all the royal offspring. Now what satanic thing is being done in verse 1? Think about it. All the royal offspring. What has God's promise said about royal offspring? What great covenant have we just studied? Davidic covenant. And what did God say was going to happen to the Davidic line? It was going to survive. Who is it that's trying to really destroy the Davidic line? Satan. So right here, you have a demonically inspired woman, very intimate now to the throne in the south, after her family took care of the north and polluted and contaminated the northern kingdom. Now they're coming down to the south to see if they can take the south out. And she almost does. 
2 Kings 11.1 1 is the closest in history that the Davidic line ever came to being totally destroyed. And had it been destroyed, God's promise would have been forsaken and God would have been shown to be a liar. The prophets record all this. Now, just to show you how thin the line was and how God, in his sovereign grace and in his power, worked to maintain his promises in Scripture. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, the sister of Isaiah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And the Hebrew indicates here she stole him right in the process while these guys were being knocked off. So how she did that, the scriptures don't really tell us. But somehow this woman maneuvered her way in as the slaughter was taking place. And she took this boy out, placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. And so they hid him from Athaliah and he was not put to death. He was hidden with her in the house of the Lord, that's the temple in Jerusalem, for six years while Athaliah was reigning over the land. Ah, now that shows you why she was knocking off the royalty, doesn't it? She'd seized the throne. And in her sinful arrogance, she thought that she could secure the throne by the usual political gimmicks. I mean, this is normal. Saddam Hussein still is doing it, knocking off your family. And this is normal ancient Near Eastern politics, modern Near Eastern politics. This is how you make yourself secure. You eradicate all your enemies. Well, she was following the SOP of, the, of that time and era, except in this case she ran into something else, and that was the Word of God. And she had a little problem here, because God said the Davidic dynasty will survive and will never be stopped. Why? Because Jesus Christ has to come. And he's not going to threaten and undermine the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So she can do all that she wants to do, but she got, she got outmaneuvered here. She didn't know it. But inside the temple, and see, it's irony in this, because where's the last place she'd ever look? The temple. She could look in all the villages, but she was a Baalist. She didn't bother with the temple of Jehovah. So guess where the six, six years... This boy was raised inside, and he became the king of Israel. Amazing story. But it's just to show you the flow of history and all the intrigue that goes on here and the intimate knowledge that the writers, who wrote kings? Prophets wrote kings. We don't know who they were, but the prophetic schools did all this historical study for us. They did the historical analysis for us. They traced all these themes for us. Why? Because they're telling us that history is his story. See, that's the mode of history. So now if you look at page 38, my notes, second paragraph, because these kingdoms were under the special election of God in history, their decline is a special case illustrating the sovereignty of God over historical processes. Processes such as political intrigue, climatically induced economic adversities, and the rise of foreign powers are not left without interpretation by the biblical writers. At point after point, the Hebrew nation is confronted with God's freshly spoken words through his prophets. We are not left to speculate why things happened as they did. Notice, we are not left to speculate. Now, this sentence is critical for history. I want to underline this. This is what real history looks like 
in contrast to what you learn in the classroom. The facts of history are explained in terms of the reign of the great King Jehovah, or Yahweh, over not only his chosen nation Israel, but also over all the pagan nations surrounding it. What do we mean by that? Those 16 books that I had you just go through, go through them sometime and count the number of countries and nations that are mentioned in prophecy. Ammon, Moab, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Media Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the, the Syrians and the Assyrians. All those nations, they're also in prophecy. Why are they in prophecy? Because the prophets have to interpret everything under the sovereignty of God. So if God is going to use the Assyrians to invade the northern kingdom in 721 and take them out, the people's faith would fail if they didn't know what? Who's in charge of the Assyrians? God is in charge of the Assyrians. The analogy in our lives is, does Satan have freedom to kill us? Does he have freedom to afflict us like he does Job? Of course he does. But in order for us not to get discouraged, we have to understand that over and above him, there's an unseen hand at work. And so that's the prophetic message, that no matter what the scourge is, whether it's nature, drought, hail, fire, the Assyrian military, whatever it is, over and above it all is the omnipotent sovereign hand of God. This is the view of history. Okay. Now, following down the notes, we're not going to read all the notes tonight, but I just want to read this first page to, to kind of pull it together. All the material in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, the minor prophets, and the major prophets refutes the unbelieving critics of Scripture. For the past two centuries, this is what you're going to get in college or high school. For the past two centuries, these critics, operating from a pagan frame of reference, have tried to educate the world into seeing this period of biblical history as the model of social reform. The prophetic cries against social evils, these critics claim, are early examples of the modern radical agenda of revolutionary socialism, world government, and environmentalism. These unbelievers insist upon using the biblical prophets as their forebearers, overlooking the obvious truth that the prophets believed unswervingly in the Creator, Savior, Lord of the Bible. In this chapter, I will show exactly the opposite from what is commonly taught in high school and college classrooms. We shall discover that the biblical prophets were reactionaries, not revolutionaries. Moreover, they operated under the authority of God's transcendental ethical standards that applied to all men everywhere, they were not inventors of progressive and new standards in so-called human social evolution. In direct opposite to the usual secular propaganda, these prophets will be seen to originate vast amounts of literary prophecy, liter literature that utterly contradicts the critics' own secular view of history. So the idea is that these men call the prophets. Yes, they cry out against social ills, but it's all inside of a framework not shared by the classroom not shared by the intelligentsia today. So it's that framework we want to look at. And we want to do this with the idea in mind that two um, great 
events that I can cite that recently came to my attention you know, over the last three or four years of how we watch the news on TV and we read the news in the newspapers and we read Time magazine and we discuss this and that and have call shows and talk shows and 60 minutes this and something else that. And we, this is how we pick up our history. Well, what's been the greatest historical event in our recent lifetime? Just think about it. What's been the greatest historical event in the last decade? The fall of the Iron Curtain. Now, we've heard all about the economic reasons for the fall of the Iron Curtain, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and we've had this little piece of here and this little piece of data, and we talked about the implications of the collapse of Yugoslavia, and we have the warring factions, and our minds are buried in a pile of information. But here's the key. Why did the Iron Curtain fall when it did? Chuck Colson spent a lot of time thinking about this through his contacts in Eastern Europe, and he wrote a book called The Body. If you read that book, you'll see how he documents in all the countries where communism fell, Christians were key. In fact, the last May Day celebration in Moscow under the days of the Soviet Union Gorbachev was the, the premier of Russia. And you remember those pictures that they always showed you of Red Square where those solemn Russians with their overcoats and their hats were sitting up there and there would be rockets and the military would be parading by. They always made a big show of these things. And uh, missile after missile, tanks after tanks, me mechanized infantry units going by this review stand and there were the Soviet bureaucracy standing there looking at them. What the papers never reported is what happened in the last parade. In the last parade, as the back end of one of the military units came by Gorbachev, there were three Christian students who happened to be Russian Orthodox, and they held up a gigantic cross. And on the cross and in their chanting at the end of the military parade was, Christos has risen, Christ has risen. And then they turned to Gorbachev. They looked right at him and they said, Mikhail Gorbachev, Christ has risen. That was the year the Iron Curtain fell. Coincidence? Not at all. In Poland, it was the Christians, Catholic and Protestant together, who refused to go along with communist doctrine. They would have to be forced to obey this little thing and this little thing. But basically, it was just foot-dragging. And the communist bureaucracy could never rule efficiently because they could never get the people willingly to go along with them. There was always this foot-dragging on the part of the so-called religious people. Chuck Colson, in his book, has a dramatic story of what happened in Romania when one pastor who continually preached the Word of God was said they, they had to fire him. They were going to kick him out. And so the Romanian secret police came to the church. The pastor and his wife knew that the police were going to break in and take them. And so they said to the congregation, you just get out of here and pray for us. We don't want you involved in this. The fight is between us and, and Sosescu. And so the troops came in, they arrested him, and they went through this big, long thing. But this funny thing happened. They arrested them and spontaneously 
in Romania, all over the country, there arose, and nobody to this day knows why, because it was not, this was not planned to happen. But for some reason, the ministry and the testimony of these Christians in had so encouraged the non-Christians, who were just bystanders this whole thing, they all of a sudden started lighting candles in the street by the thousands, by the thousands. And that was the case where, in desperation, the guy ordered his secret police to try to shoot the machine gun the crowd, and then the police became so convicted of what they'd done, they turned against him. That was the downfall of Romania. And what Colson points out is that point after point, the press never once reported this. Never covered it. All they give us is the drivel and the pile of undigested historical material. A pile here, a pile here, a pile here, a pile here. And you go to the university campus and they have these big PhD discussions on the economics of the system. Friend, it wasn't the economics of the system. It was that God had basically said, the time is now. I am personally acquainted with some of the underground work that was done to prepare for that day. For years, Christians ran a smuggling operation through the city of Vienna. In the city of Vienna was a clandestine operation, nameless, under largely under the sponsorship of Campus Crusade, but it was what we would call in the military, it was the black world. They were never on the organizational charts. The money that was funneled into them always disappeared in certain accounts and was never given an accounting. The people who participated in this operation were nameless. And they disappeared. These people disappeared for probably some of them ten years. Nobody knew where they were. They just went to Vienna. And all of a sudden, they were no longer in Vienna. Well, what they were doing was going, establishing seminaries all through Eastern Europe to train pastors for the Day of Freedom, ten years prior to the fall of the Iron Curtain. Careful preparation was being made. So all this grand scheme, and they were all led into this by the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit knew that in the decade this curtain would fall. And he wanted the believers to be trained. So, the, there's exciting stories if we could just have prophets in our day like these guys, who could peel away all the facts and say, just, folks, look. Look behind the facts. Look at what's going on here. Some neat things are happening. I just heard the other day that prior to the breakthrough in Watergate, there was a sermon that was preached in the city of Washington, D.C. that led to a conviction of sin on certain people's part that eventually resulted in Watergate. Never heard that in the newspapers. Why? Because our God is the God of history and he's always operating there. But you see, it goes back to what we started with. The problem the prophets fought with, the problems that we are fighting, even in our very view of history itself, is that we have to have a vision of who God really is. And the only way you get that is to see his footprints march through time. And that's the story of these prophets. So we want to look carefully at what they're doing to us. And we're going to do that if you'll turn in the notes now to page 39. We're going to do it through the mechanism of the structure the prophets worked through. How did the prophets analyze their history? The prophets analyzed the history in terms of covenants. So it gets back to the fact that if God is cursing the nation, 
You see, all 16 of these guys are writing to audiences that are hurting. They're hurting economically. They're hurting as far as military defeat. Uh, Jeremiah ministers at the end of his nation. He has to sit there and watch foreign armies come in, rape, pillage, and destroy his countrymen. And he is given the mandate by God to go tell his countrymen surrender. And Jeremiah says, you must be kidding. We Jews are going to surrender? Yes. Why is that? Because this is the cycle of, fifth cycle of discipline under Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and I have ordered it, and you're going to submit to it. Now, can you imagine what a great, popular man Jeremiah is? You know why he wrote the, the book Lamentations now? That's what he had to live through. These guys are all living under extreme pressure, under awful suffering. And it comes back to this again, the diagram of evil. Cursing can't be cursing unless there's a God behind it. If there's no God behind it, it is all worse than suffering. It is totally meaningless. You can take a heck of a lot of suffering and pressure in life if somehow in the lodged in your depths of your mind, you know that in spite of all the pain and all the suffering and all the heartache, there's a reason for it. But you take away that reason. Now watch your strength ebb. You collapse because there's no sense fighting it anymore. There's no reason to it. No rhyme and reason. That's when suffering becomes unbearable. It's bearable while you have a purpose to it. It's unbearable when there isn't any purpose to it. And so the prophets go back to God and his covenants to say, God, you're mixing good and evil. What are you doing here in all of this suffering and sorrow? So let's look at what they're going to do. Covenant background of the prophets on page 39. together all the cultures of the world together under a one world covenant then by controlling that covenant he controlled the world so there's this schema by the evil one to unify the nation under Nimrod and what that did was it spread toxins spiritual toxins throughout the human race and would have taken the whole human race out spiritually unless God did something and what he did in 2000 BC he started a separate nation and that's the call of Abraham God said I am going to create a counterculture and you've seen the blue slide up here what do we call it? the disruptive kingdom from Abraham on, there's tension in the air. The world at large is attracted to the fruit of the kingdom, but hates the root. And there's this ambiguity. Abraham is a pilgrim and sojourner on earth. We follow in his steps. We're pilgrims and sojourners on earth. A pilgrim isn't at home. Why are we at home? Because civilization, until the return of Christ, is controlled under pagan principles of the evil one. And there's only refreshment and regeneration through this line that God started. And there's holy war and tension. Out of this covenant, God made three promises. He promised a land, a seed, and He promised that the world would be redeemed. There would be a worldwide blessing 
through this counterculture that he was growing up in the wake of Abraham. So if you look on page 39, we review those three promises. First, he promised that Abraham would supernaturally follow a family. Father of family. By the way, the key word there is the adver- adverb supernaturally. Because it's not just the natural seed of Abraham. How was Isaac, think about it, the first, Abraham's first seed of the covenant. Was Isaac born naturally or supernaturally? The whole story is that he was born supernaturally, right? So that colors how we interpret who is Abrahamic's seed. Remember, the first time something happens in the Bible usually sets up the interpretation for everything else that follows. So when you see that the first seed of Abraham was a supernatural seed, that clues you that it's not quite the simple thing that you think it is, that it's just the physical seed of Abraham. It's physical, all right but it's a certain subset of all the physical things. I mention this to you because you might want to write on the side of your notes as a word that's going to be new to us as we move into the prophets. Their one, the prophets, started the doctrine of the remnant. And it first appears in the Old Testament prophets. And that follows from this idea that this seed here is a supernatural seed within the physical seed. Then, of course, the, prophet, the, the promise was for the land. And that's the second promise. God promised that this family would possess eternal title to specific real estate from Egypt to Mesopotamia. This promise included not only land for the Hebrew nation, but also for the location of the future cosmic temple of God, the everlasting Jerusalem. Now, when the new Jerusalem comes, it's the new Jerusalem, it's not the new York. It's not the new London. It's not the new Berlin. It's the new Jerusalem. Why is that? Because it's coming back to the same location with the same lineage, the same heritage as the modern city of Jerusalem. Now, the tension that goes on for the number one promise is still going on today. Where do you see it? What are we seeing every single day in the front pages of our papers? The pressure is on Israel to trade what? For peace land for peace. Well, they traded land for peace a number of times and never seems to work out. Everybody else gets the land and they don't get any peace. But that's why Netanyahu, who, by the way, is an MIT graduate, Netanyahu is not going to give up any more land. And our, you know, people on our side down, down the way here, they don't like that because they consider this a radical step. But idea is that the Arab nations around Israel have said, Palestinians have said, and still have not removed from their documents, their goal is the annihilation of Israel. In spite of all the Oslo Accords and all the yak-yak about peace, the Palestinians under Arafat have never once given up. The stated objective is to eliminate Israel from the face of the earth. What does that come into conflict with? God says Israel is not going to be removed from the face of the earth. And the land is Israel's because it's his. Not because the Jews are better. It's because God says that's the way I'm running the show, folks. You don't like it? Lump it. But I'm, I'm running the show this way. The third promise 
is that this will ultimately redound to the salvation of the world. Israel is the key to global peace. We see this in the Gospels when the Lord Jesus Christ says, O Jerusalem, I will not come back to you until you say what? Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. When Israel is ready to receive the Messiah, that's when world peace will happen. So Israel is still the key to world peace, though not in the sense that most politicians think. All right, so this is heavy on God's sovereign promises. By the way, look at all three of these. How many of these are dependent upon man? Ultimately, none of them are dependent on man. They are all promises of God's sovereignty. Now, yes, he works through men, and yes, men are involved in this, but the ultimate security for one, promise number two, promise number three, is God's sovereign omnipotence, period. So this is a covenant of sovereign grace. Nothing is going to stop the Abrahamic covenant. Hitler tried it. Lots of people have tried it. Herod tried it. Nobody's going to ever undo the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the second covenant we studied uh, last time, is, uh, last year, was the Sinaitic covenant. And if you look on page 40, in contrast to the Abrahamic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant revealed not God's obligations to Israel, but Israel's obligations to God. Rather than God swearing, should be S-W-E-A-R, to Israel, as was the case with the Abrahamic covenant, God required Israel to swear allegiance to him. The outcome of these policies were contingent upon the response of the people. Obedience would reap blessing, disobedience cursing. So here we have a covenant emphasizing human responsibility. It is contingent. Blessing only follows obedience, positive volition toward God. Rejection of God is cursing. So that's the side of this formula. So now the problem is, as I point out in the middle paragraph on page 40, this sets us up now for the prophets. At first glance, there appears to be a conflict between the Abrahamic covenant that guaranteed a redeemed destiny for Abraham's seed through the sovereignty of God and the Sinaitic covenant that required a human response of repentance before blessing. How can God's sovereignty guarantee future bliss when such bliss is contingent upon human conformity to his holiness? Classic case, you know, still, still arguing about it. But this was implicit in the covenantal structure of the Bible. Specifically, how could the prophets speak of a future kingdom of God when there was no permanent repentance in Israel after all their efforts? See? There's a tension that is not answered until the prophets make this dramatic announcement that they will about the new covenant. And we have to see how this resolves things. But it's important to understand how God works. So we're going to conclude tonight by looking at the doctrine of election, page 40, and the top of page 41. I'm going to review, again, all this is review for those of you who were here uh, last year. There's four things that we, we list on there. We want to apply them now to the time of the prophets. Point number one, under the doctrine of election. Election rests upon creation, specifically the creator-creature distinction. 
Without the creator-creature distinction, there can be no final plan to cosmic history, only chance or impersonal. See, that gets back to the diagram that we've gone through over and over and over and over, and I'm sure you're tired of seeing it, but that's good because then you can remember it. That there's only two ways to go. Either God is there as the creator creature, or there isn't. And I don't care who, who they are, once you deny the biblical God, you have to wind up over here on the right side of this diagram. Always. And what you wind up with is this. Man is an ultimate victim. There is no such thing as just fate or chance that reigns, finally. So, election makes utter nonsense unless you hold to the God of the Scriptures. If you believe in the God of the Scriptures, then election is just a corollary to His existence. He designed the universe the way He wanted to design it. Ultimately, we can fuss about why He allowed sin, and why did He allow Satan, why did He create Adam and Eve, why did He have the garden, why did He do all this? But bottom line is, He's the one who calls the shots. He chose a history that included evil. Could he have chosen another kind of history? I don't know. Ask him someday. But he chose this one, and he created the world with the potential for evil. And he knew very well the day he created the world that his own son would die horribly on the cross to pay for sin. It was all included in the package. Why did he do this? What's, why, does he, why does he do this? The Bible gives us ultimately only one answer. He did it for his glory. That's the final answer. So election rests upon that foundation. And by the way, the verse I quote, Romans 11.33, if you look at the context of that verse, that subject material that Paul is discussing just before chapter 11, verse 33, deals with none other than the election of the nation Israel. And here's how Paul concludes his discussion. Does he say, we've got it all aced? I can give you 15 points and tell you God's plan. doesn't say that, does he? He concludes Romans 9, 10, and 11 with this. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. What is that? The incomprehensibility of God. Paul the Apostle, for all of his intellect, probing to the very depths that a human mind can probe into the Word of God, wound up finally with this answer. I rest my case on the incomprehensibility of my God. Notice he does not say he is not loving. God is loving. We can comprehend that he loves us. What Paul's saying is that we're not omniscient. The incomprehensibility of God means that my mind, as a creature's mind, can never grasp the thoughts of an omniscient mind. Now, that shouldn't be too hard to figure out. That's where the case rests. And you don't want to rest your case there. If you don't like that and you don't want to rest your case, here's your only other option. You've got a little finite minds running around the universe with no plan. And that ultimately makes these minds meaningless because there's no greater mind out there than these little things. Just little bubbles floating on the ocean. Second point. Election presupposes a fall. There had to be a fall and a destruction in order to be elected from it. God chose Abraham out of a fallen set of beings. You can see that by two prophets. I give you two prophets there in the half part in that second paragraph. 
I deliberately picked these, these, those out, and you can find them for yourself. If you have a study Bible, you go to Romans 9, where Paul discusses the issue of election. You look in your cross-references, and you will see that the potter illustration was taken by Paul from two Old Testament prophets. The potter illustration and clay in Romans 9 it was not made up by Paul. Paul refers it to Isaiah and Jeremiah. That's where he got it from. It is not new with Paul. Another illustration of what is very little new is in the New Testament. Three, election reveals new thoughts from God's mind. The thing that, and this often, even guys at seminary don't pay attention to this. Election always has surprises. You never can predict what God is going to do. And we see that in a little sense in the way he works in our lives. You trust God for something, trust God for something, trust God for something, and you think from the way you prayed that it's going to come this way. And how many times have you seen your prayers answered in the most weird, bizarre way, and it comes in from the right or the left or behind you, and then you realize, after you back off from it and think about it for a while, gee, you know, that was a pretty efficient way he did that. Because he not only answered my prayer, he answered four or five unspoken prayers. He dealt with this person, that person, this person, and that person. A marvelous game of sovereign efficiency. But there are always these surprises. And the surprises come because our God is omniscient and we're, he's incomprehensible to us. Fourth thing about this is... It's his basic eternal promise, and it's this one. It's this one that it rests at the bottom of the prophetic messages of the Old Testament. It's very simple to grasp. If the final state of the elect is promised, then every factor leading up to that state must also be promised. Implicit, therefore, in the Abrahamic covenant promised to Abraham's supernaturally generated seed are the ministries of the prophets among them. Whatever requirements that the Sinaitic Covenant required, let's go back to this, the, the two pictures here of the Sinaitic Covenant. Sinaitic Covenant required circumcised hearts of obedience, positive volition toward God. And God said, remember at Sinai, He said, oh, that their hearts would be circumcised that they might obey Me. That's a prerequisite of that, of that Sinaitic Covenant. So whatever requirements that the Sinaitic Covenant required due to God's holiness, repentance, circumcision of the heart, blood atonement, must have been included in the Abrahamic Covenant. And it's that truth that now will emerge into something new, the New Covenant. The prophets, therefore, from Samuel to Jeremiah, had a dual-track ministry. And that's what we're going to discuss next week the dual track ministry of the prophets. And I'm going to demonstrate to you that you can take every prophet of those 16 books. I won't go through all 16 of them. Give you samples. But you can go through every one of those 16 books I started with tonight and you will see that the message in all 16 of them consists of two tracks. Here they are. On the one hand, they prosecuted Yahweh's case against the nation for its disloyalty to him and announced the imposition of a Sinaitic covenant cursings upon it. So in one sense, the prophets always have this stream of accusation and bad news. On the other hand, they also preached that the nation would certainly enter a future kingdom of God promised in the Abrahamic covenant. And each prophet had his unique way of expressing himself.
So what we're going to do, starting next time, is we're going to go through some of the formats that were used. If you look ahead in the notes on page 41, you'll see that one of the things that the prophets did is they preached that Yahweh ruled surrounding pagan nations as much as he ruled uh, Israel and Judah. And I'm going to take you to the Isaiah. If you want to read an exciting story, on the top of page 42, read Isaiah 36. That's a neat story. It's, you can read it quickly, but it's a great illustration of all the shenanigans that went on and why Isaiah walked in as a prophet in the middle of a big mess. And he said what he did. And notice in Isaiah 36 how King Hezekiah conducted himself as a leader. He screwed up at first, but when the pressure came on, King Hezekiah was sitting there and he listened to something. And the pagan ambassador from Assyria made a big mistake. He came in there and he was trying to intimidate Hezekiah, and that's great, you know, that's hoopla, but he overextended himself. And this is always the case. And you watch this maneuver, it's sort of, sort of like a super martial arts that God has in history, where the forces of evil strike and they, they at first they seem victorious. So now they get their arrogance up even more and they strike again. Only one big problem. When they make the second strike, God grabs their arm and pulls it and they fall flat in their face. Isaiah 36 is an illustration of that. And it also will show you how in actual historical time one of the great prophets ministered to a decision-making leader the prophetic message and how it was applied. It's a super, super chapter about that. And then you'll see bottom page 42. The second theme is uh, Israel and Judah had broken the Sinaitic covenant and would therefore have no claim whatsoever on Yahweh's protection. Seems contradictory, but all these things will be pulled together when we study the new covenant that's coming up. Father, we thank you for your consistency for your faithfulness, for the fact that you have preserved this track record of your behavior down through history and absolute loyalty to your spoken word. And we ask that this would warm our hearts spiritually and encourage us to trust more in the fact that you are consistent, you have a plan for our lives, and though we aren't privy to all the details, we trust you with your plan for our lives. Through Christ, amen.